0: We'll we'll be in Luke chapter 16. I say this often, but you'll definitely want a copy of the Bible in front of you for this one. As Paul read it, if you wondered how in the world do you preach that, well, welcome to the club. Uh, Money is certainly on the forefront of people's minds these days as we approach these midterm elections, poll after poll, is demonstrating what we might expect to be true which is the economy and inflation are at the top of people's priority lists the stock market remains stagnant if you haven't looked at your retirement portfolio in a while don't (laughs) inflation is on the rise gas prices are high groceries are more expensive than we're accustomed to houses are nearly unaffordable and a used car who can find. And it's easy in these sort of situations to to allow our minds to be redirected towards uh, money and to be a little bit obsessive over money or even overly concerned. It's not that we shouldn't have right concerns. It's that we shouldn't be overly concerned. We certainly shouldn't become mastered by these fears about the state of our own money. But when the news hits us every night and every morning when you open you know, a, a news app, it's money, money, money. It's easy for us to, to, to be blinded only by what's presently in front of us and forget to live and use money in light of eternity. We're tempted to use money in greedy ways, and that ultimately reveals that we are, we've been become, become mastered by money and not by the Lord Himself. And so we need the words of Jesus this morning. We need his words to draw us back to reality. Or maybe more appropriately, to point us forward to eternity and those most important realities. So there's just two points this morning. It's it's really nothing fancy in terms of of the points. I simply want to walk through the parable in verses 1 through 7. And then I want to look at what Jesus says about the parable in verses 8 through 13. So we'll look first at the parable there in verses 1 through 7. Notice first the audience. He also said to the disciples. Now we've just wrapped up Luke chapter 15 and Jesus was primarily addressing the Pharisees. You'll remember, if you've been with us uh, over the last few weeks, you remember that Jesus was uh, addressing their grumbling, that the, the tax collectors and the sinners had come unto Jesus, and he was sharing a meal with them. And so Jesus told them a series of parables to demonstrate that they shouldn't be grumbling, but that they should be rejoicing because these repentant sinners and, the, and these repentant tax collectors have come to Christ. So Jesus highlighted the diligent search for the lost sheep and the diligent search for the lost coin. Jesus highlighted the compassion of the Father as He ran out to greet His repentant Son. So we see the compassion of the Father, the necessity of repentance, and the joy in heaven over even one sinner who repents. Jesus was making the point that it's not that He approves of sin, it's that He rejoices He rejoices in the repentance of sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so in our text this morning, Jesus then turns to His disciples and He begins addressing them. So following these glorious parables of, of salvation and compassion and, and repentance, Jesus turns to his disciples and challenges them with a parable related to how they should live in this world, specifically as it relates to how they should deal with their money. So we'll look at the parable together again, and then we'll see what Jesus has to say about it. Look there in verses 1 and 2. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the story begins with a rich man who is apparently rich enough to have a manager that manages all of his estates and all of his finances, putting together you know, details from the rest of the story. It, it seems like this man has lots of land that maybe he leases out for others uh, to use, and then he gets a portion uh, back from them. And so this rich man has has this manager, and the manager sort of becomes the main character of this story. This manager has failed at his job. He hasn't done his job well, and we don't really know why he has not done his job well, but it's reported to the rich man that the manager has, has been wasting his possessions, in fact uh, that verb they're wasting it, it's the same word from the prodigal son when he squandered his own inheritance. So the manager has been squandering the money of the rich man and that can't stand, right? So the rich man decides to fire the manager. So he calls him and he says, "Well, you know, I'm hearing these things about you." But then he makes one crucial mistake. You know, when you fire somebody, they need to be escorted out by security. And he doesn't do that. He says, "You know what? Go get your books and then bring them back to me. And so the manager is in this position now, right? He, he doesn't know what to do. There's, a, there's this dilemma, and he's in a pretty desperate spot. His reputation will be ruined as soon as word gets out that he's been fired for squandering his boss's wealth. And he has other limitations, right? You see him there in verse 3. He says, I, I'm not strong enough to dig. You know, again, unlike the prodigal who said, I just want to be a servant in my father's field. This honest, hard work is beyond this man. But he's also too dignified to beg. And so this is quite a predicament. His time is running out, his options are limited, and then in verse 4, the light bulb goes off. He has this plan in verse 4 that will actually be able to secure his future. Look there in your Bibles, there in verse 4. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So before you actually get the plan, you get sort of the end goal of the plan. I know what I'll do, and once I do it, this is what will happen. The People will actually receive me into their home. I won't have to dig because I can't do that. I won't have to beg because I I will not do that. So I've got this plan that will actually provide me a house. It will provide me a place to live. I will have some provision. I'll have a status that's higher than, than a beggar. Yes, professional house guest is his goal, and he's got a plan on how to get there. And we see his plan in the next few verses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. So he comes up with his plan, in which he can win himself some friends by essentially using those who owe his boss money. And what we we get here is a couple of examples in verses 5 through 7. And I think that's what they are because it says he summoned one by one his master's debtors. And then I think we get two examples of what this is. The first example is a man, we just read it, who owes him a hundred measures of oil. He owes it not to the manager, but he owes it to the rich man, his boss. And so the manager can go to these debtors who haven't heard that he, he doesn't have the authority anymore to make these sorts of calls, and he can say, you know what, how much do you owe? Well, I owe a hundred measures of oil. Well, what do you think about cutting it in half? Just pay that much. How how does a 50% discount sound? Now that's, uh, maybe understanding these measurements will help us to understand kind of what's going on in this story. Maybe understand the weight of what's going on. That's not like a 50% off a Reese's that's about to expire. A hundred measures of oil would be 175 gallons of oil. That'd be worth like a thousand denarii. One one denarius would be one day's labor, like common or like minimum wage would be one denarius. Oh so over three years of of salary. And the manager says, Well, what do you think about cutting it in half? You get another example here in verse uh, seven. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So again, a a similar example. A man owes 100 measures of wheat. This too was lots of money. Some commentators suggested up to 8 to 10 years of of service, of work, of salary. He says, you know what, I'll give you a 20% discount. How does that sound? And so what's going on in the parable is the manager is using his position, he's actually defrauding his boss, you know, some people try to say, well, is he really that bad? Yeah, he's actually, he's actually that bad. He's defrauding his boss, but his goal wasn't to act righteously, his goal was to secure his own future, and he's figured out a way that he can do it. He's, he's not righteous, but he is clever. In giving these steep discounts to those who owe his boss lots of money, he's actually placing these customers in debt to himself. Now that Now when I need a favor, they'll let me into their home because I gave them half off their debt. I gave them 20% off their debt. So when his employment, when he turns in his books and he's got no more paycheck from the rich man, he has a place to go, he has a place to live, he has some provision, and he's got a status that's greater than beggar. So you might think, if that's all you had up to this point, if you hadn't heard Paul read the whole text, you might say, well, the application's simple, right? Don't be like that guy. Don't be like the dishonest manager. But what makes a text difficult What makes it hard to interpret is that Jesus commends this guy. So we need to figure out what that's all about. And we'll spend the majority of our time in Jesus' application of the parable in verses 8 through 13. Look at the uh, commendation there in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now this is, again, obviously a very difficult passage to interpret and when we come to hard passages we want to be honest and we want to be humble and and be willing to admit that you know it's, some of these things are difficult to interpret you know sometimes when you're trying to understand the scriptures it 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 looks like trying to discern between one or two or three good possible interpretations. And you just have to try to figure out what is most likely based on what you can discern from the text and the context. And so one of the hardships in this parable is determining when the story ends and when the application begins. Um, So it can end at the end of verse 7. The parable could end in the middle of verse 8. The parable could end at the beginning of verse 9. And it is. It's hard to guess. And ultimately, it's not going to shift a whole lot of the meaning, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time dwelling on this. I don't want to get dragged too far into the weeds here. But the question really boils down to, who is the master in verse 8? At first, it might seem obvious. Of course, it's the master that has been in the parable. But then we'd have to wrestle with, well, what in the world happened? Why would the, man, why would the rich man fire the manager for squandering his wealth and then commend him for squandering more of his wealth? But more importantly, that word, that word master is the same word used for uh, lord. It's kurios, Lord. And in the parable you see my master or or my lord in verse 3 you see his master in verse 5 but in verse 8 you get the master. And typically in the gospel of Luke the master or the lord is going to be referring to Jesus. And again it doesn't change a whole lot of the meaning. So if you if if you're just not convinced that's okay. We'll come together on the on the back side of this thing, but I think what happens is you get, a little, you get a little note here from Luke that Jesus has finished the parable. The parable's gone as far as it needs to go. We don't need to know how it all ended. The parable has gone as far as it needs to go, and now we get a, a, a note that Jesus commended the shrewdness of this man. And So, if that's right, then we need to ask, what exactly is Jesus commending? Well, obviously, he's not commending the man's dishonesty or the man's unrighteousness. He's still called a a dishonest manager. Again, we don't have to work hard to try to make this man better than he is. He's been dishonest. What Jesus commends, though, is, is his shrewdness, not his righteousness. He's dishonest, he's unrighteous, but he was clever. And he demonstrated his cleverness but by acting out of concern for his own future, by realizing, man, my future is about to be greatly altered, and I need to act right now. And he acts cleverly. He figured out a way to secure his future. And so I think part of, part of why we get confused on this passage, part of why I was nervous as I was reading the text on Monday, like, man, what in the world is going on here, is it's easy to forget that it's possible for Jesus to affirm the man in one way without affirming him in every way. We do this all the time, too. Think of, think of movies where there's not like exactly two good guys, but you're sort of rooting for one of one of the groups. Think of You know, maybe you've seen a movie like Ocean's Eleven where a group of thieves is ripping off the casino. You're like, oh, well, I don't know. I'm sort of for these guys in some ways because they're really clever. But I can't be for them in every way because they are thieves. I can't really call them good guys, but I can appreciate that they're ripping off the casino in one sense, and I don't feel too bad for the casino too because they're probably not very righteous either. So in a similar way, Jesus commends the dishonest manager for using money to secure his future. In fact, you get the point of the parable there in the middle of verse 8. Look at that word. For the sons of this world are more, concern, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So the point of the parable, again, this is, this is difficult stuff, but the point of the parable comes in what, what seems to be a lament from Jesus, that the sons of this world, that is, unbelievers, are more concerned with securing their futures than the sons of light. That would be believers or disciples. And so the point at which Jesus is driving at is this. He desires that his disciples would act with their eternal future in mind with the same zeal that this man acted with his temporal future in mind. He saw that there's something coming down the pike and I should be preparing and I should be shrewd and I should be clever in preparing. And Jesus says, why is it? Why is it that an unbeliever acts for his future, but the sons of light often fail to live with their future in mind? So you might say it this way, that followers of Christ are meant to handle their money with the same decisiveness and the same cleverness with which the manager did. Not the dishonesty, not the unrighteousness, but with the decisiveness. We should be shrewd in one sense, But obviously being in Christ, that that definition of what it looks like to be shrewd changes. It's different from the dishonest manager. So God's children should be diligent in considering the long-term effect of our actions, especially our actions related to money, as those unbelievers are about their immediate temporal concerns. In other words, invest in your future by the way you use your money. Spend your money with the end in view. Don't be driven about, like we said, by, the, by the, the smoke screen of what is right in front of you, what is most present. Live in light of eternity. And so Jesus then begins to kind of tease this out for us. One of the ways a a disciple of Christ is shrewd is that he is generous. There in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So Jesus, I think, is borrowing language from the parable, pulling it down in and trying to apply it to his disciples. Now, you make friends with the way you use money. You're not going to make friends the way the dishonest manager did. You're not going to rip people off, give them a bargain at the expense of of your boss, but you make friends so so that your eternal future is enhanced. So the disciples should be generous with their wealth in a way that makes them friends who will receive them, the text says, into eternal dwellings. You see what I'm saying when I say this hard? The idea, I think, is this, that you aren't using your money or someone else's money to secure temporal security. Instead, you're using your money in such a way that heaven welcomes you with great reward because you are not storing up wealth for yourself on earth, but you are rich towards God. You are storing up treasure in heaven. So, one application for us is, again, we've been making it, but consider eternity. Consider eternity, fight to get past the obsession with only the present. this sense of presentism, it, it permeates our culture. I was teaching a class uh, a couple weeks ago in, in Missouri on counseling teenagers, and one of the things that's that's consistently true of teens is that they they struggle with this idea of presentism. And I realize as I teach that, like, yeah, and we all do. We all do, don't we? It's not just, it's not just teenagers. So consider how you might in- employ or use your money for God-glorifying purposes that will have eternal consequences and reward. When we focus on eternity, when, when we're, we're concerned about more than just this life and the right now, we're actually then freed to be generous with what God has given us. We're free to give away. Notice also there in verse 9, it says, money will fail. So, So we're thinking about focusing on eternity. And in the text, we're reminded by Christ that money will fail. It says, so that when it fails. Money is temporary. Money will fail. It will not last. Remember the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who was only concerned about this life. And he did not know that his soul was required of him that night. And so he is unprepared for etern- eternity. He was unprepared for that moment when his money failed him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I must warn you to not trust in the uncertainty of riches. They will fail. Maybe in this life they'll fail you. Ultimately, they will fail you in the next. All those who have given themselves over to living only for money stand guilty before God on that day when your soul is required of you. And your hope this morning is found only in Jesus Christ, who has made a way for you to be reconciled back to God. If you would turn from your sin, including your love of money, and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Trust in His death and resurrection that He indeed paid the price on that cross for your sins. Christian, I wonder for you this morning and for me, do we consider our use of money in light of the judgment seat? That we too must stand before God and give an account. Again, the point that Jesus has been making is that this manager, though he was dishonest, thought harder about his next move, then disciples want to think about their next life in eternity. We shouldn't be deceitful or manipulative, but we should keep in mind that we will stand before the Lord and give an account. So we strive to live today in light of that day. Live knowing that on that day, it, it won't matter how, what kind of car I drove or how much money I had in my bank account or how prestigious I was because of my riches. What will matter, one, your status is secured in Christ. I'm not suggesting your status isn't secure in Christ, but what will matter in terms of an account given is how you used what the Lord had given to you. Jesus also then says, be faithful in small things. He brings an application from uh, uh, there in verses 10 through 12. Look in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. What Jesus does is he, he lays down this principle in verse 10, and then he'll apply it in verses 11 through 12. The one who is faithful in little things is faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in little things is dishonest in much. You know, the problem, the reason Jesus has to lay down this principle is that we tend to want to divide life into these big matters and these small matters, and we assume that, you know what, I can get away with being unfaithful in little things, but when the big thing comes, I know I'll actually be faithful there maybe you've even said something like you know when i start making x amount of money then i'll become faithful to giving my money away and serving others but jesus lays out this universal principle that what is driving you is not your circumstances not whether this is a big matter or a small matter what is driving you is your heart So that your heart interacts with big and small circumstances the same way. If you're unfaithful, you will be unfaithful in both. If you're faithful, you will be faithful in both. So be faithful in small things. I I read a story this week of a seminary president who would stand before hundreds of, of young men who are preparing to go into the ministry. This is the first day of the students being gathered. Imagine all the things the president could encourage these men to do. Some have hope to be missionaries. Some hope to pastor and preach God's word and see people come to know Christ. And the president gets up in front of these men and he says, Gentlemen, pay your bills. Pay your bills. Because he's, he's getting at this concept that, that to be faithful in something small will lead to faithfulness in something big. A man who doesn't pay his bills has hardly any hope to be found faithful in doing the Lord's work. And so with this principle in mind, Jesus then teaches us that that the way a a follower of Christ handles money, that's, that's the small thing I think Jesus is getting at. Money is a small thing. Eternity is the big thing. So the way we handle our money becomes a barometer as to whether we are or should be assured that we will inherit true riches, which is the large thing. If you're faithful here on earth with what God has given you, there's a level of assurance that you will will inherit these great things that Jesus has been preaching about in the kingdom of God. So look there in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So remember that Jesus is talking here to the disciples. He's applying this to what He has called sons of light. So I just, want to, I just want to call time out real fast and say, you know, Jesus isn't saying you will be reconciled to God if you're really generous. You will be saved through your generosity. Obviously, that's not what Jesus is driving at. Instead, those who are reconciled to God ought to be striving for faithfulness and can thereby gain assurance of their right standing before God and assurance of their eternal reward. The great thing, I'm faithful here I will be rewarded here with an eternal reward. What Jesus does is he makes it clear that that, that we're simply stewards. We're managers of the money and possessions that God is pleased to give to his people. The manager was shrewd, but he was not honest in how he handled another man's wealth. Well, the disciples of Christ here are called to be honest with another man's wealth, God's wealth, and to be shrewd. So part of being faithful with money then is to recognize that everything we have that relates to money, right? We live in a we live in a culture with debit cards and bank, you know, but everything that relates to money is given to you by God. Your job, your car, your home your bank account, even the strength you have to go to work, they've all been entrusted to you by God. And these are things that are given under a stewardship that are meant to be used to faithfully glorify and serve Him, not to pursue selfish ends. So we should... We should ask, then, how can we be faithful in in this small thing, the way we use our our money? Maybe we should think more broadly for just a minute together. One thing we can do is we we can work. We can work. Paul warns of idleness in 2 Thessalonians 3. He goes so far as to say that the one who does not work shall not eat. He calls the church there to value hard work, even looking at his own example. He calls them to actually confront the one who is idle and refuses to work. So one of the ways we can be faithful with what God has given us to steward here is to steward the, the, the job and the ability to work that God has given us. We can be faithful to, be, to not be found lazy or idle. Another thing we ought to do with our money is provide. One of the benefits of of money is that it provides for your needs and the needs of your family and the needs of your relatives if you have a family. In fact, again, the New Testament warns that the person who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So we work hard. We steward the job that we have. work hard so that we might provide for others. Some of you are without a family, you have greater opportunity to use your wealth to bless your spiritual family, the church, through your hard work and the money that you've earned. The position that God has you in now, it may or may not be something that you desire, but you can use this time of your life to serve Christ and others in a way. Paul says that, frankly, a man with a family cannot. So we can provide. We can provide for others. We can provide for family. We can provide for church family. I don't want us to get confused either and say, you know what I should do? I should just write a check for whatever's left in my bank account and give it to the church today. That's not, not what I'm saying. If you hear me say that, the elders will fire me before anything. But anyways, So I want to say that one thing we can do, a way we can please and honor God, is we can invest and save money. The book of Proverbs commends the wise practice of saving. In fact, it warns that those who don't save are at risk of facing poverty. Think of Proverbs 21.3. The wise store up choice food and oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Now obviously we can go overboard. Our sinful hearts can go overboard with just about anything and we can we can be like the rich fool who's just hoarding everything and only concerned about this life. But I did want to say that it's not dishonest or unfaithful to use money in terms of saving it. Another goal we can have in remaining faithful to the Lord is passing down money. Proverbs 13:22 says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You know, just by the nature of Proverbs, I'm going to say it this way, the faithful and wise steward will often have something to pass down. You can't control your circumstances, you can't control what God has given you. But the faithful and wise steward will often have something to pass on to the next generation. Again, it's not unfaithful to steward God's resources in this way. Another thing we can do is avoid bad debt. Again, the Book of Proverbs warns that the debtor becomes a slave to the lender. Now, I'm not suggesting that a mortgage or or a car payment or things of that nature are, are inherently sinful. But I'm, my fear is, and we'll go, we'll go here with a different topic in just a second, but, but my fear is we oftentimes have this, this isn't sinful, and then we apply it in ways that aren't helpful. So it's not sinful to have a mortgage, so I'll spend above my means in basically every other area of my life as well. We should avoid putting ourselves into debt where we're Unable to use our resources for God's good and for God's glory because we are serving ourselves above even our own means to pay it back. Ultimately, we do all of this so that we can be generous with what God has given us. So that we can be generous stewards. That we can serve others. I think so many stop stop at, at this point when they think about their work or their job or their money. Do I have enough to live comfortably? And it stops there. But that's the sort of thing that Jesus is pushing back against. Quit just thinking about now and self. Quit thinking only about today. Instead, live a generous life. And again, much of this is is. Not meant to be rebuke as much as commendation. Lizzie and I even benefited this last week. Lizzie hit a car with, or not a car, a deer with her car. Um, And I'm not exaggerating. The first five people we told are like, here, use my car. That's the sort of like open-handed generosity that characterizes Southern Hills Bible Church. And so, again, this is a push for those who need its commendation for many Let me just say, as we talk about being generous, as we talk about using what God has given us, I want to encourage the kids. You can start today even. Maybe you get a little bit of an allowance. Maybe you earn a little bit of money by helping your neighbor. The question is, are you you generous with what God has given you, even though it may seem like a small amount? For the adults, in the room. I, I was going to say this too. I purchased a few copies of this book by Jim Newheiser that I think is helpful. Money, debt, and finances. Jim Neuheiser is a great biblical counselor. If you, if you need this book, um, I will give you this copy. Just come see me afterwards. Um, there, otherwise, there's copies there in the lobby. I think they're 20 bucks, and that's not me being shrewd. It's what they cost. Jesus calls money this small thing. But, but what he means is that it's small in light of eternity. And so he's not saying it's a non-issue. And we see there in verse 13 that just because he calls money the small thing doesn't mean we ought to take it lightly. Look there in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus warns the disciples that that money and wealth and possessions, it will be competing for your hearts. Money conspires with this selfish ambition, these selfish desires that still reside even in the heart of those who have come to Christ and they've trusted in His work, they've been counted righteous in Christ. We still have these these selfish desires that we have to battle against. And so money conspires with this covetousness that can dwell in our hearts and it conspires to master a person, to become an idol that we serve and this is the danger that Jesus is warning about in fact that Greek word in verse 13 for money is the word for it's it's translated mammon some translations just say mammon and when you hear that word mammon if if you grew up hearing that word it's got a, a negative connotation in Luke Jesus always uses the word mammon in a negative way you may have noticed even in verse 9, he, he calls it unrighteous wealth. What is why would Jesus call it unrighteous wealth? It's not that, it's not that all wealth is sin. Right? We, we we've mentioned that several times as we walk through the gospel of Luke. It's not that, it's not that money is inherently sinful. But I do think we need to be pushed and we do need to try to redirect our thinking somewhat here because we want to say that, you know, and this is true, but again, I think we need to be pushed a little bit harder. We want to say wealth is not bad unless I use it for bad ends. And again, that's true. But what Jesus does, is, I think he comes at it from the, the opposite perspective in saying something more like, money is dangerous and will be used for evil ends if you don't intentionally use it for righteousness. If you don't intentionally use it to serve and love and glorify others, there's something in our hearts that will take that money and it will twist it for selfish ends. Again, we want to say... We want to excuse oftentimes our selfish use of money by saying, Well, money is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It's how you employ it. And that's that's true. But when something gets into our hands, it's no longer neutral. Our hearts are interacting with that. So we should be leery of our hearts. We should understand the, the, the danger of our own covetous desires. So unless we very carefully and humbly employ the money that we have, reliant on the Holy Spirit, reliant on His work, then this money, again, will conspire with our hearts and it will twist it towards selfish pursuits. So Jesus warns the disciple, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You know, what, what, what's the alarms that should be going off? Well, if I find myself neglecting church and family responsibilities in the pursuit of money, if I find myself being stingy and greedy or, or having these grand ideas of how I can serve but, but never actually serving, if we're incapable of giving because we've put ourselves in a fin- financial position by buying things we can't afford, those, those are like alarm bells that should be going off because Jesus is saying how you spend your money reveals your heart and how I spend my money reveals my heart and what Jesus is driving at it, since it's impossible to serve two masters since we will by very nature love one and hate the other and since money is temporary and it will pass away love God, love God and use your money for his glory don't, don't, don't do the opposite, where we love money when we want to use God. That's the prosperity gospel. I want to use God to get what I want. Jesus is saying, love God and use your money. Certainly all of us have room to grow here. None are so righteous that we might never, we we might claim to never struggle with greed or selfishness. All of us, we, we understand the battle that Jesus is describing here between serving one master or the other, loving one master or the other. But there's hope for us this morning. There's hope for us this morning because our righteousness does not rest in, in how well I've done. My righteousness is secure in Jesus Christ. And even the, those of you who are following Christ, you are invited to, by, by God to confess your sins to Him to know that he is gracious and humble. We can can pray to God and pray that he he would use even the financial situations we might find ourselves in to conform us to the image of Christ and to put to death these desires that dwell within us. We can search the Scriptures, rehearsing the truth of the gospel. I want to grow in my love for God. How do I grow in my love for God? Well, consider the hope of Christ. Consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love God because He first loved you and He demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider the gospel. And consider that He delights in His children that call to Him, and confess their sin and pray and ask for His help. So be shrewd this morning. Be shrewd, not in dishonest dealings, but in considering eternity. should consider, as we close this morning, that money is temporary, but God is eternal. Money is a terrible master, but God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Money will fail, but God's faithfulness endures to all generations. He's a good God. He's a good God and a kind Savior, deserving of all our worship. So we use money, but we love God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you for your love that was demonstrated in Christ Jesus, poured out in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. May we be comforted this morning with the hope of the gospel. May the sight of our own sin drive us not to despair, but drive us to the foot of the cross. May we confess our sins and find fresh hope and peace and grace there to walk in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.